Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actress and author Beth Beers. Ever since three-year-old Beth Beers saw Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, she knew she wanted to become an actor. Beth's perfectionist nature and her professional approach to the craft resulted in a driving ambition that got her into UCLA's acting program and eventually led to her first role on network television as the co-star of the CBS sitcom Two Broke Girls. Success wasn't the answer to everything, though, and it brought its own set of challenges, like navigating the gauntlet that is being an actress in Hollywood. As Beth says, we're told so many different things in the media about how we're supposed to be and act. When Two Broke Girls began, I went from having no money and working as a nanny to being on a hit television show. And at some point, the schedule, the pressure, and the anxiety from all of that started to break down my body. Well, in order to be the best actress she could be, she had to learn how to manage stress and take care of herself. Beth soon discovered the therapeutic power of meditation, nature, and horses. She got back in touch with the person she used to be, the self-described inner theater kid in pajama pants. And with her newfound wisdom, Beth wrote a book about self-care called The Total Me Talks. She's the first to admit that she still has plenty of work to do. So now, in addition to acting, she's found a new calling in equine therapy. Beth joins off-camera to talk about the C-grade that derailed her acting degree, why she's more comfortable in a character's skin than her own, and the audition where she was told to cry prettier. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Beth. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm such a fan of this show. Oh, thank you. You know, people should know that this is, we're taping this rather late in the day because you have a crazy schedule. You're on The Neighborhood, yes. which is filmed in front of a live audience. Yes, which I love. I, I don't know how you come and do things like this. It seems like when you have a job like that, it's, it's pretty much your whole week, right? It's definitely over a week. Look, we're a sit- sitcom schedule, so it's really nice because it's kind of like rehearsing a play. Yeah. So we're kind of nine to five on the days we're not shooting. And days like today, we just had a rehearsal in the morning and then I came here. But um, I would come here for anything, Sam. Well, so excited to see that. you. <laughs> I'm excited to see you because I read your book. You did. I did. <laughs> you wrote a book called The Total Me Talk. Yes. And I immediately identified with it, and I'll tell you why. When I was younger and trying to figure out my career and going through all the things that you do in your 20s, anxiety and trying to get work, I used to lament that there wasn't some life manual that was written <laughs> for me, right? Yeah. And especially if you're an artist, there, there isn't any sort of instruction manual on how to do this and you have to make up your own system. And until you figure it out, it's incredibly anxiety provoking. <laughs> yes. And so I felt like when I read your book, I was like, oh, she wrote her own life manual. I did. And, you know, I think it's also there are no rules. And that was the point of the total me talks. It's about the person. You know, we are told so many different things in the media of how we're supposed to be and act. And for me at the time, you know, I went from having no money, being a nanny to being on a television show that was a hit. And at some point, the schedule and the pressure and the anxiety from all that, it started to break down my body. Like I talk about in the book how... I had this skin virus all over my body and doctors couldn't figure out, you know, I was tested for psoriasis and any sort of skin conditions. And they kept saying, like, there's nothing wrong. Like, we don't think it's any of those things. But it turned out it was from deep rooted stress. And so I had to, you know, I learned meditation and I found horses and there were a few things in my life that completely shifted it. And I just, you know, I've always been someone who really thought it was important to preach about taking up space in this 
world and how so many times, especially as women, we're meant to be so small. And right. I felt like I wanted to write something to empower people to really take up space and be who they are and be okay with that, you know? And if you read between the lines in your book, there's a lot of, you know, there was a lot of pain that went into building that book. And I feel like the underpinnings of that book were made by the, uh, the gauntlet of what an actress has to go through yeah. in this town. And, Absolutely. And the book was a reaction to those things. Absolutely, and as someone who, you know, kept the price tags on my clothes at my screen test for Two Broke Girls because I couldn't afford to really buy nice clothes. And Michael Patrick King was like, do you own a pair of shoes that's not cowboy boots and like a white blouse? And I didn't. And then it's funny because after the pilot table read, he hugged me and he was like, do you have, um, do you have tags on your clothes? Like I was still buying and returning even through the, the pilot table read. Cause I just, I mean, I was truly working six days, seven days a week, nannying in the week to, and then bartending. And you know, it, it it was a struggle, and thank God I had Kat Dennings because she God had been around. Nordstrom. And thank God for Nordstrom. They'll uh, take anything shout back. Shout out Nordstrom. Yeah, <laughs> they'll take anything back. Um, and they didn't know I wore it at Warner Brothers. Now they do. Uh, now they do. Thanks, Nordstrom. Uh, You're gonna yeah. get a call from like the president, <laughs> the of, president Nordstrom. of Nordstrom. I'd be okay with that. I still love Nordstrom Rack. Love a good deal. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was. I learned a lot. It was truly, I feel like, my graduate school in not only comedy but in Hollywood. Yeah. And I was really glad that I had. Cat had been doing it for much longer than me at that level. So right, right. I had literally someone. I mean, at my screen test, we literally walked out holding hands. Like she was always holding my hand. Through. Really? Yeah. So I felt like without her and without him you know, believing in me and, and fighting for me. You know, they didn't want me. I was no one, <laughs> you know? Well, I, I think you bring up, I think you bring up a good point, which is that catch-22 of how, how to make someone think you're the person when they can't have some evidence that says you're already the person. person. Because right. this business is creatives and business people, and the business people want assurances, and the creative people are like, we built a life on risk. Right. And the business people are like, well, we can't have risk. Right. So it's amazing that anyone new gets through. Right. And know? as someone like me, you know, it was, I I would have done it for free. I've been doing it since I was four years old. And Don't tell them that <laughs> either. <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> no, but I really would have. And so there's also an in incredible level of gratitude and I felt an overwhelming amount of that but also responsibility that I have been given an opportunity that not many people get as want to be actresses from the time they were little kids so I better not miss a comma and I better in front of that live audience never break I mean to be honest Kat and I there were new pages coming in like we had whole scenes and you're in front of a studio audience and you'll get a brand new scene. And somehow, I don't think I could do it now in my 30s, but somehow her and I would look at each other. We'd look at the like 10 page scene, we'd throw it down and we'd get about one take out with like the whole scene perfectly. And I think we both just felt like we're gonna jump off this cliff and we are gonna fight and do everything. But then at the same time, the perfectionism and the fear of failure and all of that is what started to take a toll on my body and my anxiety. Right. And there is something about being live. Like, yes, you can do a take too, but you are in front of a studio audience, so there is an element of like this is a live performance, which and they I saw love, take which one, is awesome. And, yeah. and you really want to make it. And real. I think that's something for me. You know, I grew up watching Carol Burnett's show and Lucille Ball, and I think there's something about an intimacy with an audience and a television audience, obviously, that only happens in the medium of multicam. Right. And I also grew up on Friends and Will and Grace in the '90s sitcom era as well. So for me. I feel like, you know, we've sort of moved away with all the incredible cable premium streaming, 
But remember, there is like a part of the population in this country who can't afford premium cable streaming or Netflix. And they're still looking to network television to tell these stories and to make them laugh. Like yeah. people can sit down and watch a sitcom and you relate to at least one of the characters, inevitably. Whereas sometimes with like the premium cable, it's like those characters of like, who do we want to be and who do we not want to be? But with a with a multicam, like it's it's sort of the everyman. And there's something really cool about that that I'm very proud to be have been a part of. Yeah. You know? Well, I do think that I haven't thought of it as community before, but I think when you have a live audience, there's also this there's this understanding that it's it can't just work for the audience it out in television. Work. It has yeah. to work in the room. Yes. And if it works, the room feels it, the audience hears it, and and it does pull you in. In it's not theater, but it's not. It's, it's not, not film and TV. It's this. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something of being a comedian, and especially when you get a new joke. I mean, there's like an adrenaline rush and an electricity of jumping off a cliff, and then when it works, it. It feels like better than any drug, you know, but when it doesn't work, you fall hard. Right. It is live and they will not laugh. Like, and you'll jump and they won't laugh. And I feel like that for a perfectionist like me has been the biggest lesson of multicam because you will fail. There will be jokes that have worked all week because it's, we all think it's really funny and the writers and right. you're like, oh, this is, this is going to be the one. Everyone's supporting each Everyone's other. Everyone's supporting each other. Or you just think it's really funny or you think your co-star is hilarious when she does, whatever. And then it just tanks and you have to really, it also makes you a better actor because you have to go, okay, do we try that a different way? Do I try a different take? Or does it need a new joke? I mean, what's the... I think that the pressure of that, of yeah. thinking that you're going to have to pause a while for the big laugh. Yeah. The big laugh doesn't go. Sometimes you make a joke of it, and you're like, "Was I really that bad, audience?" I mean, you know, sometimes, and they are there to see you mess up anyway. Right. Especially like you know, season one of a show, and then with two broke girls. By the time we were doing it in front of a live audience, people were dressed up like us. You know, there was such a energy that you're getting from them, and you you have such a relationship, even though you don't know them, but yeah. they feel like they know you. I really, I really enjoy that part of, yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, I want to go way back and kind of start at the beginning. Because <laughs> way back. You, well, you said something a second ago. You said okay. that you knew you wanted to do this your whole life. And uh, to me, that's kind of amazing because I had a lot of hobbies as a kid <laughs> and a lot of interests. But You're a very talented man. You're a renaissance man. I mean, you play music. You well, take photographs. You, you, I mean, you know, so I could see how as like a kid you were a very talented kid. Some of well, us only I got had a lot of laughter. I don't know about talent, but I had interests <laughs> and I had curiosity and totally but there's no way I could pick one thing yeah. because I would feel like how would I know or next week I'm gonna be into something else but you specifically have said that you've known that you were born to do this or that or that it was just in you like yeah. it, that acting picked you yeah I've never felt like there was anything else I mean I was three years old watching the sound of music acting it out and begging my parents to like do what I saw Julie Andrews like I I don't remember a time where I wasn't consumed by film, television, and theater. Like it was Now, all were I your did. parents in the arts no. or anything? They're both in education, which is wonderful. My mom's a teacher and my dad is in higher education. So no, they were both, I mean, their main thing was like, you can do this. They supported me my whole life. They were just like, you have to get an education. I did not want to go to college. Really? I begged them not to let me in to come to LA and be the star I knew I was supposed to be. And I'm so grateful to them because they forced me to go to college. I went to UCLA and it was a wonderful experience. And I was a nerd in high school. I mean, I never got a B and 
I loved academics, so I'm glad that they forced me to because I think that the education I got there is the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing, you know? Yeah, I think that when you're the kid of educators, you're not going to do bad in school. Right. right? <laughs> when, when you look back, was there a trait you had as a kid where you're like, oh yeah, it makes total sense the way I am now? Yes. There were also multiple times that things would happen, like I remember auditioning at probably seven or eight for Annie. Anywhere. Annie, uh, in like theater. the community or regional okay. theater. I did a bunch of community and regional theater, but I remember them laughing as I was doing the scenes, but I was like, I am not trying to be funny, and they're laughing. And I remember thinking in my head, it feels kind of good that they're laughing. What if I push it even further? Then they would laugh more. Like, But I remember being so young and being like, I wasn't trying to be funny. Interesting. But then that was also the age where I was like staying home from school and watching I Love Lucy repeats because I discovered it on my like little tiny TV that was this big that right. my parents like I let me have in my bedroom and I would watch them at like 11 a.m. on a Friday. You know what I mean? So it makes sense now that that I was drawn to comedy. And you know, I loved growing up. My dad always took me to Chris Farley and Jim Carrey. I mean, the, the funny thing is I wanted to be Chris Farley. Really? Or like Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett too because I watched that with my grandma, the Carol Burnett show like changed my life. But uh, it, it's funny looking back now because I'm like, yeah, I was drawn to comedy from a young age. And I was in high school, I got straight A's, but I was always getting kicked out for making jokes. Or even if I wasn't the one making jokes and talking, they would assume it was me and kick me out. Beth, I'm like, it wasn't even me this time, but I would get kicked out of the classroom. So I like, I see it now that like there was obviously a trend growing up, but I thought I was a very serious actress in theater school. Like I wasn't really? necessarily pursuing comedy. I wanted to do everything and I wanted to do Broadway desperately, still do. And um, yeah, so it's and interesting. And you sang back then, right? I sang. That was my first love was musical theater. Yeah. So did your parents realize at some point like, oh, we have kind of a professional kid on our hands? Like, did they have to get more serious with it because you were relentless? Absolutely. And they even, God, I love my parents because they also, you know, I always went to public school, but they paid for the public school that I went to in Virginia because it is one of the best okay. theater schools in Virginia. And they didn't have a lot of money, but they always, once they saw, I think also just my passion, they really made it a priority. Uh, and their only caveat was that I get an education and, and I could study theater, I could study it, but I had to go to school. And I don't know why I was so resistant to college. I think I was just so ready. I didn't, you know, in high school, I, like on the weekends I went to voice lessons, so I didn't drink, I didn't go out with friends. Sometimes I look back on that now and I'm like, oh, I really committed. Like I, I, I there's sometimes where I'm like, I really wanted to go abroad and I didn't because I was afraid I'd miss an audition. And now looking back, like, I would have been a better actor going abroad. You know what I mean? I just, yeah. but at the same time, the drive and the ambition I had got me to where I am today. So I, you know, it's like, what can you do? And I mean, I had fun in college, so it was fine. <laughs> did, did you feel like, um, because you knew it was what you were going to do, did it make you impatient to get started? Absolutely. It did. I was desperate to get started. I was writing, I wrote, Kristen Chenoweth's manager at Untitled at the time. I was 15 and I wrote her a letter I think Kristen had just done Charlie Brown and I'd seen her on the Rosie O'Donnell show. And I wrote her a letter that said, I am the next Kristen Chenoweth. I am 15 years old. I don't remember exactly what the letter says, but she let me come and have a meeting with her in LA. And she, I just remember sitting down and she was like, I just had to meet the 15 year old who was like, I'm, Chris, I'm the next Kristen Chenoweth because that's a ballsy thing to say. And like, really? I flew by myself. Like, I, like it was so like- So what did you think? <laughs> like when you got the letter back? Oh, I thought the... I was gonna be a star. I was like, oh, well this is my, big break. This is my What did your chance. mom say? 
they were just like, probably thought the same thing. Like, wow, some big manager actually responded. I mean, now I think I'm like, did they think I was weird? Because my sister's like in graduate school, very intelligent, normal life. I mean, I was doing that stuff though from the time I was 10 or 11, I was trying to write. And I begged my parents to take me to New York when we lived in Virginia to audition for shows. And they never did because they were like, we don't want you to be a child actor. Like we want you to get an education. And then when you're an adult, you can make that choice if that's going to be your living, which now I'm like, so incredibly grateful for it, but at yeah. the time I was very impatient. Yeah. You were. So, yeah. I and love it, Sam. I love what we do. <laughs> what do you think specifically it is that you love? Well, I was reading a book a few years ago about the flow state. You know about the people who like, what our brain does when you, like the guys who climb half dome in Yosemite without right. ropes. I feel like there's something that I love and it only happens, I feel like as actors, we're always chasing that, which is this, and you probably have it in your art as well, like playing music or taking photographs where it's like that transcendent experience where you're completely out of your head and it's you're fully in the present moment and there's like an electricity between you and another actor and it's better than sex. I mean, it's better than anything that you ever could feel, or at least to me it is. And so I think that's why I do it, is I chase that feeling. Right. Um, Probably the same way I would I would assume from what I've read that there is some sort of flow state happening when that all comes together, right? The way that, you know, Alex Honnold climbing without ropes sure. feel in much higher stakes to, than well, acting. But. I, I'll tell you, I think the metaphor to a rock climber is that obviously you have to have intense concentration, stay yes. completely in the present. Horses, like, I, same way. When I'm riding horses, I, I feel like I became a better actor when I found horses because they force you to live in the present. Right. You have to learn, and you have to learn like that that's enough to just live in the present and be with what is and not try to right. change what is. It's interesting because you've described yourself as you know type A, <laughs> yes. personality, ambitious, controlling, uh-huh. all those things. And Often that goes the way of, you know, someone someone takes a very buttoned up career where they can rein in everything under their control and feel in their comfort zone because of that. But it sounds almost like because you're that way, acting is your be, chance yeah. to not be it. And that's my favorite part when it's, and that's why I think I do have this just deep love of comedy. Because I think it's, first of all, it's so difficult, but there's also a musicality to it. And I feel like loving music and growing up studying music and singing and I feel like there's um, the same feeling I get singing that happens in comedy somehow because there is sort of a, a rhythm and a music to it right. no matter what it is no matter if it's multicam or if it's something else but yeah I mean acting that's the best actors are the ones who play like Olivia Coleman, I watch her and her sense of play I mean I rewind scenes to watch you know it's spontaneous always with her she's always jumping off that cliff and I, I don't feel like, from what I can tell of listening to every interview she's ever done, is that it's not calculated. She is in that flow state and jumping and playing, and it's visceral for her. And, right. and you're right. As someone who in every other aspect is so type A and anxiety-driven, and it, it is my, like, oh, I'm more at home there than I am in my own skin. Like, when I'm in a character's skin, I'm way more at home than when I'm myself. Why do you think you push yourself so hard? I, like, I guess I'm curious. I don't know, if, Sam. Like, when, when you're, when this you're is young. This great therapy, you guys. I am learning a lot about myself. Well, that's, that's what I strive <laughs> that's to do. That's what you're here to do. That's what I really you want to do. You truly are renaissance. Are you going to get your PhD soon? I feel like Sam's going to be getting his MFT at Pepperdine. <laughs> I'll tell you what keeps me from getting any sort of letters after my name. It's like Children? studying. Oh, School. <laughs> studying. Anything that requires tests. Uh, yes, like, I mean, yeah. 
Whew, it yeah. gives me anxiety I, just the I word had test. to invent my own job because I cannot work for someone else. Well, you've done a great job. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've done it, Sam. Congratulations. No, don't dodge the question. I okay. want to know <laughs> uh -oh. why you think you drive yourself so hard. <sighs> and I wonder if it's related to I was born to do this, so I have all these expectations, and if I and and I need to hit them, and if I don't do everything possible, well, and I'll not? be devastated if I don't get to keep doing this. I think for me, it's also a fear of if I'm not perfect, and I don't every single episode of every television show that I am grateful enough to have the opportunity to do. If I don't bring it every single time, then Hollywood will forget about me and. I won't be able to do this for the rest of my life, which is what I want to do so badly. Do you think you are by far your hardest critic? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I, you know, it's with everything. I, I ride horses and I, if I don't get something right, first of all, with that situation, it, the more anxious or angry or upset at yourself, you get the horse just completely, especially my horse is a rescue horse, so she'll be like, bye, like she'll take off. So for me, it's like, I'm even like that when I can't get something right on the horse. Like it's, why can't I get this the first time? Like I'm not enough even for the horse. You know what I mean? Right, like that's, right. You know, maybe that's it. Maybe it's a deep fear of like wanting to be good enough, but wanting to be good enough because I love it so much. Yeah, I think, I think that's the thing they don't tell you about being really passionate or really yeah. driven is the downside of the fear of what your life would be like if somehow the thing you love went it, away or if you weren't good enough to do, to do it. it every day yeah. yeah do you think that ever gets any easier i'm working on it now i feel like i'm having a lot more fun yeah. um and i'm really embracing the sense of play and knowing that failure i just listened to a really interesting interview with um tal ben shahar who's like a happiness he's a scholar of happiness at harvard he has a class in happiness and he has a book. They did not have those kinds of classes. By the way, if they had school. had that at UCLA, well, I don't know if I would have been like emotionally ready or like evolved enough at like 20 years old to right. really take like, what happiness? I take now from Tom. I don't have time yeah. for happiness. <laughs> right. But he has a book on perfectionism. And, you know, he also says that you're never, you're always going to have failure. But I like what he says about that it's always going to be hard work. And I think I've never balked at hard work. I've right. always, you know, that's been a no-brainer for me. And I think that that's a big part is doing the hard work, but knowing that even if you do all that hard work, you're still going to have failures and that's okay. But I think a, a certain amount of fear is, is a motivator. But I don't know if that's even right because I know I've watched people who I admire and then you look behind the curtain a little bit and, and, and you think like, if, if fear is the prime motivator, are we really getting to know ourselves? I think that one of the keys to happiness is embracing every gamut of emotion. Right. Fear, anger. There's like a Buddhist saying that I always think about when I have a bad day where it's uh, that, that you think about the ocean and there are some days when it's calm, but inevitably there's gonna be a storm and there's gonna be a day when it's choppy. And like if you just embrace the days of fear or choppiness or know, I mean, I still every night, it's been almost nine years now of set sitcoms every week, like in front of a live audience. I still get a nervous stomach before I walk out there to do my bow. You do? Yeah. But I think that you're right. I think there's a level of embracing that as a good thing. And as soon as I go out there and it start acting and I'm the character, it all goes away. But it's that it's the anxiety. It's that anticipation right. of what's going to happen. Am I going to be good enough tonight? Oh, okay, I'm fine. I got to laugh. Like, we're good. Let's, let's roll. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> yes. I relate it to every time you have a a success, 
you maybe get to soak in that for, for like, an hour yeah. or a night or something. <laughs> and the next day you're like, oh, I got to prove myself all over again. Right. But I think that that's like the key to happiness is not fighting against that and embracing that and embracing the fear and jumping and knowing that like failure is a part of of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm, you know, I'm talking, I'm talking like I really embrace this myself, but I'm still working on it. Obviously. Oh, it's, and it's so easy to tell other people this. <laughs> yeah, yes, Sam, you know, um, every day that I, yeah, I know, I'm like, no, of course there are days where I'm like, this is, I don't even know if I want to be an actor anymore. And then you're like, of course I want to be an actor, but it's hard, it's you know. It's amazing you can cry and your mascara doesn't even run. <laughs> that was a good, that was a good comedy cry. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> That's the trick. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation and hear from this week's sponsor, ARC. ARC is quite simply a new way to achieve professional level teeth whitening at home for just 30 minutes a day. Now we all know that the minute you open your mouth and start talking, all the attention is directed right to your teeth. And if your mouth looks like Igor from Young Frankenstein, it's not going to make a good first impression. But the truth is your smile is sort of right at the heart of your self-confidence. And if it's not as vibrant as you'd like it to be, then maybe you're not putting your best foot forward but ARC can help you feel more confident. You brush your teeth every day, you even floss, sometimes. But did you know there's another level of oral care? With ARC, you can remove stains that lie beneath the surface of your smile. Don't consider this some vanity teeth whitening thing. Think of this as a deep cleaning that's great for your teeth, and the added benefit is that your teeth don't look yellow. Each ARC treatment includes dentist-approved, enamel-safe whitening strips that adhere to your upper and lower teeth, along with ARC Blue Light technology. The blue light mouthpiece arcs around your entire smile, delivering targeted blue light energy to help weaken set-in stains below the enamel surface, making your treatment more effective than strips alone. And to help our listeners get a whiter, brighter smile, Arc is offering $15 off your purchase of a blue light kit when you visit arcsmile.com and use the promo code CAMERA at checkout. Go to arcsmile.com and use the promo code CAMERA for $15 off your blue light whitening kit. That's arcsmile.com, promo code CAMERA. Now back to the show. So you went to UCLA. You, you put yourself down here in Los Angeles. But as someone who loved theater and Broadway, how did you end up choosing L.A. and television over yes. New York and theater? Uh, well, I wanted to go to NYU, but I got waitlisted. And when I got waitlisted, my I thought you were going to say you got wasted. And I got wasted at NYU. And they kicked me out. They were like, you can never come here. You dance naked <laughs> on a table. No, but... Um, I think they encouraged that. <laughs> they totally encouraged that at NYU. Uh, and my parents were like, look, we don't want you to send back the waitlist. Like, we can't afford NYU, and you'll be in debt. I mean, I would have right. forever. And I had gotten into UCLA, and obviously they have a wonderful theater program, and... Um, I, I had always like loved Broadway, but I still wanted to do movies and TV as well. So I came to UCLA, and I actually had a Broadway callback my first week at school. I went to like an LA open call for a show. It was called Princesses, based on a little princess. Okay. And we, I got a callback, and I flew to New York for my first Broadway callback. And the writer was Sherry Steinkellner, who used to be one of the writers on Cheers. Right. And she pulled me aside, and we went to dinner after my audition in New York. And she was like, "You're really funny," because by the way. 
what I did for my audition was, it was a pop show, but I don't sing pop music. I sing like Julie Andrews. But you had to sing a pop song for the callback. For my right. initial audition, I sang something else. I had to sing a pop song. And so I took um, uh, Rolling on a River, Tina Turner, yeah. and I did it. Left a good job in the city. Like I did like my own comedy version of it. Right. And so I think the cast director was like, you're the most original girl I've ever seen in New York, which is like, I think, a way of being like this weirdo. Um, but Sherry saw something in me and was like, look, I really think Broadway will always be here. But I think you're really funny, and that's something that you can't teach. And you're already in LA. You might as well focus on that and go for it. And know you can come back to theater someday if you have a TV show. And I think that's so interesting that that you sort of got the advice from somebody there in the midst of chasing your dream that there's this other thing. And you know, you could certainly look at the version where you didn't get on a show or whatever, and Absolutely. just be like, Oh my God, I got the I, worst advice ever. I went out and like. <laughs> was treated like crap for eight years by casting directors and, yeah. and getting bad little jobs. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? No, and at UCLA, it was really interesting. I was in the theater school the first two, three years, uh -huh. and I had one professor pull me aside there and say, you should drop out. You're really funny. Said the same thing, like, you could get a sitcom or a comedy, you know, comedy television show. And then I had another professor who I never got a B, anything lower than an A my whole life, and he gave me a C in acting. Really? And like, and you're was, like, nope, nope. Uh, acting picked me. Well, I think it was also because we were doing a Tony Kushner play. <laughs> and for this is maybe it was my fault, Sam. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, because it was Tony Kushner, but I had this whole like ah, falling down the stairs, like physical comedy bit. But I just kept doing it because the audience was laughing, so right. I was rolling with it. But you can't really do that with Kushner. No. So I think he gave me a C because. I wasn't honoring the playwright, maybe. But but also, I he ruined my GPA. I mean, in high school, I was like t one of the top kids in my class, and like you know. And I mean, he, you're joking right now, but what? Did it <laughs> you mean you're joking right now? But well, let's get. What real. did it feel like when when you saw a C? Oh, it's the worst thing ever for a perfectionist. And it, I, not even in the thing I love to do. I not know. even you know my mathematics class at UCLA. Like, so you what happens I mean? to you internally when that? Like, like. Well, I kind of was thought. I mean, I I dropped the acting program. You did. I did. And I actually ended up graduating at UCLA with a BA in theater, film, and television producing. So I don't actually technically have an acting degree from UCLA, but I still keep in touch with one of my professors I love there, and obviously my friends are all still from the theater school. I so. bet you can go back and get like a, you know. <laughs> An honorary. After the fact honorary. I don't know. If that teacher gave me a C still there, he might be like, this one really messed up Tony Kushner's work. He's like, no. <laughs> it was a bright room called I'm not day. giving her, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. But no, it, yes, when I saw that C, I felt like a failure and it was rough. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me what your life was like in LA, working jobs, not having money. Like, what's the picture that comes to your mind at kind of your lowest point it, it, where you've been released into the sea of everybody wanting to be an actress in this town? Yeah. Um, just the struggling to like have gas to get to my job. I mean, just the day to day you struggles. You were that poor. I mean, I was nannying and then bartending at the Gaffin Playhouse, which is like an amazing theater here in LA. So I got to watch free theater every night, which but was wonderful. But aren't you only bartending like, for like 15 minutes during intermission? You do it at the beginning. And then I also concierge because they have like a desk where you can ask questions. Okay. And so I did, I kind of did, I worked in the box. I did like a whole thing okay. there. But um, just the whole like, you know, I didn't have anything to fall back on. I didn't come from money. And, and there were people in LA who could afford classes and the best headshots. And then just Where the grind of audition. I was living, um, this is a good story. I was living in a one bedroom, sharing a one bedroom with 
my one of my best friends, Courtney, who's still my best friend today. And uh, when I got the Two Broke Girls pilot, I went back to my nanny job after I did the pilot because I still had to pay my rent and we right. hadn't get we don't get paid to whatever. And so I and I kept the one we kept the one bedroom because we didn't know if the pilot was going to go. And so I was like, got a taste of what it was like to be a television star. But I was like, still like going back to like my tiny little one bedroom apartment and sharing it with my roommate and eating ramen and you know what I mean like still using Nordstrom still for- using Nordstrom going to Nordstrom and then having to take it back and all of those good things so okay before you got to broke girls were you in that situation where you would get auditions or get close and then they wanted a name yes always and also like I just remembered there was one that I got to test for which because I didn't ever get big auditions like this but the Mamma Mia movie because I was oh, a yeah. musical theater fan right. it was the first time I went into a booth and it was like an actual screen test and all that and yeah there were times that like and then there were also times where I'd have auditions and like have real tears and like look up and the you know the person behind the desk would be like can you cry prettier like I know it was real <laughs> can you cry but like prettier? next time you do it could you cry prettier and you just be like okay so when that happens like do you feel like oh I'm gonna get fired like do, do you have those hundred percent you do oh my god especially with two broke girls because I mean it was a jump for CBS to take a chance on someone new to do this two-hander with I mean Kat was already an established movie star. Right. So I do feel though like I had Michael Patrick King and Whitney Whitney Cummings really they knew I was their girl. Like right. I did feel like Caroline Channing I was her to them and right. there was no one else. So I knew Michael was going to fight for me, you know. Yeah, but I, I do think that's, you know, that's a big leap to go from some guest spots and some oh, smaller things and all beyond. of a sudden Yeah. And was that, that was probably your first multicam, too, First right? multicam. But I remember the first, the taping of the pilot, I had an opening monologue where Caroline comes into the restaurant for the first time, and Jimmy Burroughs is running, and Michael Patrick King beats him, and I'm behind, like, to the door. I'm behind the door of the diner, getting ready to step out to do the thing, and they, you know, they cut, and he comes out, and he's like, I'm so sorry, but I have a whole new monologue for you. This is the monologue. And, and Jimmy Burroughs, like, behind him, like, I'm sorry. And I turned, I'll never forget, Tim. And how long had you worked on the first monologue? Oh, for the whole time. (laughs) The whole audition process, screen test. And I turned to the hair, the lovely man, Tim, who was doing my hair, and I started to tear up. And I just remember him looking at me, and he's like, you can do it, you can do it. And I took a breath, and then I saw Jimmy Burrow's eyes and Michael's eyes. They're like, you can do it. And they walked out, and they said action, and like, it came out. Which, now I still go, I think I have too much fear in my head now in my 30s. I don't think I could... I don't think I could just th- like not have any fear and step out and do that again. Maybe, maybe I could, but sometimes I think back to that time. But also, like, what a graduate school in comedy, in television, and I had Jimmy Burroughs, Michael Patrick King, and Kat Dennings holding my hand. I mean, there was, I wasn't gonna fail because I was supported by wonderful people who God. are were basically my professors. Do you know what I mean? Like- I do, but at the same time, when you when I hear a story like that. I just can't imagine getting a whole new monologue. Yeah, right. Right, right before was, yeah. going out. Especially with like the network watching you. Yeah, that was, yeah. and the live audience. Yeah, but you know what? Now I'm like, but how exciting too. And, and you know, I mean, you know this about comedy too. When it's fresh, like sometimes when you have been doing a monologue all week or for two weeks or since your audition, you know, I had eight auditions for Two Broke Girls. So whatever, however many times to then have something brand new. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I bet you that it was the first take. I bet you that the take you see in the pilot right. was that the new jokes, everything in that piece. And and you're not going to be able to recreate the spontaneity of that. So that's cool. Yeah. And I imagine after after you nail that, like the rest of the night's a breeze, right? <laughs> no, I never felt like it was a breeze, but 
Um, that that show was hard because Kat and I talked the whole 22 minutes. Yeah. I mean, it was learning sometimes 50-something pages of dialogue every weekend. I mean, I, I literally equated it to grad school also just because we worked so hard because you did have to do it like a play. It wasn't like a single-camera show where you, okay, I have five pages today, three pages tomorrow, whatever. I mean, we learned it all in a weekend and then jumped, and then it might change. And then you'd learn the rewrites on lunch or you'd right. learn them right before. And, and it was, but what a, like I said, what a great master class. Like, what an amazing yeah. six years to what? have. What do you think is the, the thing that people don't see that they wouldn't, they wouldn't realize how hard it is? Just those hours of saying no, missing weddings, missing baby showers, missing uh, those like life moments that you can't get back because, I mean, for me, it was because like I was terrified to miss a comma or terrified to miss a word. And or, you can't cheat on that stuff, especially not live. No, and you don't want to. I wanted to serve the writer. I wanted to, yeah. you know. But I, yeah, I did miss some like big life things and right. but we all do I'm sure any actor you have in here has missed funeral or any of that for having to be on a set and be the lead and work I mean sure you yeah. know you get the whole crew then there's insurance I mean if you don't show up they can't film you can't so. be sick and you can't be sick oh yeah so I that's hate the being worst sick. part of it. that's right but you know what sometimes that play in New York I got sicker than I've ever been and I didn't have an understudy and like I mean there were nights where I, I didn't know when I got off the stage, my body collapsed. I had a double ear infection and a sinus infection. And I went on every night and sometimes they were my best shows because I just think your body, it's amazing how powerful our bodies are and what they will fight through when you're acting. Because then as soon as I was off stage, I was like shaking, fever. Like, I don't know how your body just does it to get through the play. It's like such the theater thing of like the show must go on, but it really must, you know? Well, that's a great segue into what I wanted to ask you about because you wrote a Lenny letter yes. and you talked about how Hollywood is dedicated to inauthenticity and that everything that is sort of shown is the opposite of how it is. And, <laughs> and you also talked about in that letter how when you were in high school, you got to be the theater geek that wore pajamas to school and sung out loud out of your crappy car. And that was your identity. And then you came to Los Angeles, found the success, and then sort of forgot about all of that or lost it. Yes. And I, I wanted to ask you about that, about what you went through in terms of your body breaking down. Because the conventional wisdom is the hardest parts come when you're broke and you can't get work and you're auditioning. But it sounds to me almost like that first season of Two Broke Girls, you found success, but it still didn't fix the things that were waiting to, like, Come show, show their, their true colors yeah, or something. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I I think that particularly being female in our culture, it's very difficult to prioritize self-care. Just in general, I don't know what that is, but I think that it's something that I know me and my circle friends in our 30s are a lot more vocal about prioritizing, a lot less shameful or guilty about prioritizing. But in my 20s, it wasn't even self-care or the time to sleep or there was, I, that wasn't even on my radar. It was ambition. It was not getting a line wrong. It was being, watching videos of my heroes, trying to, you know, soak in everything I could. It was like, reading plays I mean it was just constant be the best be the best be the best and I think like what I've realized in my 30s is like to be your best you have to take care of yourself and 
that to me was the best life lesson that could have happened when that skin, when my skin had this crazy thing happen, which was my immune system saying like, you must prioritize slowing down. So you're on the show. I mean, how many did you do? 26 or? Yeah, like back then you did 25 or 26 okay. in the so beginning. Okay, so you're on that treadmill and, and you're figuring it out. And yes, and you're doing press on hiatus and you know, hiatus And you're probably and still scared that it could all go away. And, and I was still living like in, apartment buildings that weren't, I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't have like some massive quote when Two Broke Girls started. I mean, I still lived with my roommate the first three seasons. I mean, I didn't, um, there were challenges at, at, I remember my apartment building started to get kind of shady and there were like break-ins and things. I mean, there was also stressors, just outside stressors that most actresses who are a lead on a television show just didn't have to deal with. Like the panic attacks would happen like before bed for no reason. It never affected my, and still doesn't affect my, um, the craft of acting, or like the, like I told you, I feel more at home and safe when I'm in character acting. It was my own life things that would be triggered, whether it was, yeah, like break-ins or what my body was doing. I also like, I still want to eat like a five-year-old child. I I mean, I'm a five-year-old boy at heart. I love pizza, pasta. You know, like I had to really also like learn how to eat a salad. And there were things that like, just self-care things like that as well that I had never, also remember a few months before that I was eating ramen. I was as cheap as you could get at the market. There was no organic going to Erwan. And for me, I mean, I truly will say that meditation, if I had to pick one thing that first year, I think it was Whitney Cummings who said, look, I just learned this amazing um, meditation called Transcendental Meditation. A lot of actors do it. I think it'll really help you. And I I still do it. And I did it every night of Two Broke Girls. Like I, I never missed, you know, it's like my part of my process now. Like I must do 20 minutes of meditation before I go on stage or shoot anything. Right. And like I said, I also think it was like feeling guilty. I was in my 20s. I wanted to have relationships with my friends. I mean, it was really difficult to have like a life outside of the show. And I felt pressure to want to have, obviously, relationships yeah. are part of what makes us so happy. So I think it was just a call, like it was really just navigating all of that and then never letting it, which it didn't ever affect my work, but keeping that at that level, my body went. That's when the virus came out because it was like, you're holding all of this. Did it, did it feel like that? Like, like, Well, I thought there was something wrong. So yeah. wait until a doctor went, this is, I went to a Chinese doctor at Chinese medicine and he was like, this is your immune system shutting down. You know, you need to change your eating habits. You need to find some sort of like exercise routine or meditation or yoga, whatever it is for you. I don't know what it is, but you've got to prioritize self-care before all this other stuff. Well, I do think that to be three years old and, and be like, I know, this is what I want to do. And then you spend your whole life trying to do it. And every decision you make along the way is to do it. And then you get there and you're doing it and your body feels like it's, it's shutting, shutting down. down. I mean, it must've been scary. Scary and also though, like that gratitude because I'd wanted to do it for so long, never left. So when I was at the show and doing the show, I was still in heaven. It was when I was like off and my body would break down. It's like that right. flow state or whatever it was. You know, when I was in that, I was ha- I was great. It was just the the learning how to navigate everything around it. And also, I look, it's very hard for me. Like, I'm a tomboy. I like cowboy boots and, you know, I'm not a big fashion girl. You know, and there was a lot of pressure. We were young in our 20s and I was having to go on red carpets and those things that, like, I had no idea about. I was a theater kid in pajama pants. Like, right. I, and I don't care. <laughs> I just, was it weird I, yeah. to, like, was there some sense of, I mean, I, when I think about Two Broke Girls, one episode that comes up in my mind is, 
I forget what it is, but somehow you're you're having sort of a vacation in someone else's apartment and you guys are in these like tent things where just your <laughs> heads are sticking out. And then at some point you unzip and you st- you get out and you're in like these six inch heels oh, and a bikini God, those heels. and you've got no fat on you at all. And you're just like, <laughs> that was from stress because <laughs> I was still eating pizza and <laughs> carbs up the wazoo. Yeah. But anyone could look at that scene and go, the level of attention paid to the appearance and and the stress of that, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. on so top funny of, that you're saying this because I'm thinking of that scene and all I remember is how funny it was. It was totally because funny. Because it's like, because comedy-wise, I never thought about, and probably to my detriment, I wasn't thinking about how I looked. But it's funny to think of you now because in my 30s, I, I'm hearing you say it and I'm like, oh my God, I really did. But I don't remember having like fear about it because I was Caroline Channing coming out to it. It wasn't Beth. But if it was me on a red carpet, I would have been shaking and panicking. It's so interesting. I know. It's weird. Yeah, because it is, it's you, but it's... Yes, the acting and all of that and the playing characters, that I knew how to do. I'd been doing it since I was little. But the navigation of what it means to be a woman in Hollywood and to be scrutinized and for everything you wear or everything, you know, social media or any of that, to me was like, I'm really nerdy. I'm still the kid in pajama pants, but like... I don't know if I can be myself because, and now in my 30s, I'm like, I am the John Wayne of Carol Burnett's. That is who I am. I like horses, cowboy boots, and that's who I am. And I'm owning it. And I love acting. That's what I do. But it was very difficult to be coming up and have it overnight, have the scrutiny. That's what it was, that it was an overnight scrutiny as opposed to a gradual gradual build. Or or, or a later in your life Oh my God, if I had come in my 30s, I wouldn't have cared. I I don't care about (laughs) how I look, which I'm sure my publicist hates me saying this right now, but like, it's truly the last thing on my mind. Like, you know, I always say I would act for free. It's the press and the carpets and whatever that I feel like you get paid for. You know, I keep saying I'm acting for free, which is really not going to be great for like the pay gap right now, you know? Like, no. Let's get Beth. She'll act for free. <laughs> She'll act for free. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think that's what I was saying about your book at the beginning. It seemed like you don't write a book like that unless you you run that gauntlet and, and manage no it. Rules. And And like, I think there's a lot of women who did not come to that realization that you did and are still on that treadmill. Men, too, where it's everyone, like... Everyone, it's, it's hard. This pressure to be what you think the expectations are. And I also get the sense that as much of a type A person that you are, you're also sort of a people pleaser. Oh, 100%. Right? Yeah. And and that gets complicated when success comes. Absolutely, especially if you come from the theater where all for one and one for all. Like, But I know that that is not the norm always in Hollywood. So I I do feel very lucky that I've had those experiences. Um, But I also think it comes from you. And like I said before, I think a lot of people forget how grateful we should be to do this every day because there are millions of people out there whose dream was to be an actor. Yeah. And there is an amount of gratitude that I, like, will always be within me because I know how hard it is and how desperate people are to be able to be an artist and make a living. Yeah. Like, we're so lucky, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Is there a moment that you could pinpoint when this kind of revelation hit you that, Oh, I do have to take care of myself. Yeah, in the woods. After I saw Wild with Reese Witherspoon. Okay. Me and my girlfriends, before we turned 30, we did like a big backpacking trip together, which was, you know, still one of the best things of our life. But that to me also was discovering that nature and horses and all that is a place 
where I can go and be truly myself. So after sort of kind of discovering that maybe in all this television land, you weren't going outside and you weren't doing things like that, you discovered equine therapy. Yes, yes, Um, changed my life. And was that through the fact that there was there's a horse on two broke girls. Yes, Rocky or Rocky. Chestnut or Chestnut was his uh, okay. his stage name on right. the show. His character name. But is that what introduced you to horses? That really is Scott, our amazing horse trainer on the show. I I just started to notice that when the horse was on the show, I felt calmer and more grounded. Really. And I said something to the trainer. I was like, I'd really like to like hang out with horses more. Like I'm just feeling. I was a kid who read Black Beauty and I loved Saddle Club and stuff like that, but. My parents could have never afforded horseback right. riding in Virginia. And then actually Whitney Cummings had introduced me to a woman. She was like, look, if you love horses, you should try this woman who does this equine therapy and you don't even have to ride because I was still kind of scared of horses too. And I was like, I don't want to ride. I just want to be around them. Uh, and I started working with her and noticed right away a difference in my panic attacks, in my road rage, in just feeling overall so much calmer. Oh, and you, then, you didn't mention your road rage. And that's a secret, Sam. We're getting really deep. I don't know how deep you want to go with the road rage, but uh, <laughs> it was a problem. Um, really? Really bad problem. But uh, yeah, and I, uh, my sister is a survivor of sexual assault. And when I started working with the this incredible woman, I was like, this would be amazing for women survivors. Like I have to introduce, I have to somehow do something where I can bring survivors of sexual assault and horses together because the way that I felt empowered and the way that it changed my panic and anxiety, like it actually makes me want to cry, like how beautiful the relationship is. Um, and so my sister and I are still, we, we did a, an amazing, we raised enough money and did an amazing program where we brought six survivors of sexual assault uh, to our amazing uh, co-creator of Shared Power, Cassandra Ogier. We brought her, them all up to Northern California and we did our first program uh, and it was beautiful and it was wonderful and it felt like also, you know, I said I've always wanted to act my whole life and that's my dream, but it also feels like now I have a new sort of purpose in bringing women and horses together. Wow. Um, yeah. I, I had no idea that that's, that was the origin of starting that charity was that it happened so close to you and your family with your sister. Yes, yes. And wh- why do you think that dovetails so well? What do, what do you think it is about that therapy that that connects with survivors? Yeah, well, horses force you to live in the present and they also force you to establish and hold firm with boundaries. Uh, You know, one of the exercises Cassandra had done with one of the women was um, in a round pen, there was a circle and the woman was extremely nervous about the horse coming into her space and, you know, she said, don't let the horse in until you feel ready and she was shaking and like, I don't want it around me. And it's like, that's okay. And the horse stayed away. And, you know, Cassandra had her breathe and feel her feet on the floor and sort of do a, we call it somatic reprogramming where you're going back into your body. And as soon as she went back into her body, uh, she felt calm enough to say, okay, I'm ready to let him in. And the horse, there was a circle she had drawn as a boundary and he literally put both of his hooves just right on the circle until she was ready to let him in. And then, the horse came to her and, and it was just like the most, everyone was crying. It was the most beautiful moment of sort of coming back into your body, knowing that you are allowed to take up space. You're allowed to have a boundary. You're allowed to be who you are and that's enough. Knowing that just you living the truth of what you're feeling in that moment is enough to communicate with this massive scary animal 
and have a connection is, to me, as empowering as jumping off that comedy cliff in front of a live audience and feeling that flow state. Like, I feel the same flow state when I see that happen. So interesting how, how well you articulate the idea that... I'm, f- I'm glad that was well, because I'm like a little emotional, a little shaky, a little sweaty when I talk about it, because it's, it is like, it, I'm obviously extremely passionate about it, but it is hard to explain to, and that's why it's been hard to raise money. It's a hard thing to explain to people who don't really understand what it's like to be around horses. Well, and I think even larger is the point that, that it's so easy to feel small as a yeah. human being or as a woman and to sort of just accept that from an early enough age that you don't question it. Mm-hmm. And you don't question boundary issues or, or whatever it is. And I think it takes some, some of that flow state or awareness to, to go, oh, wait a minute. Uh, you know, like to me, yeah. that's, that's the thing that, um, you know, I have three girls and yeah. I don't want them to ever feel small and I don't want them to ever feel like they aren't allowed to take up as much space as they deserve or to own that space. Yeah. And, I think if you don't understand it, you can't talk about it or teach it, you know? And we're, I mean, luckily we're at an age now where there is, you know, time's up. There are these movements that are happening that younger women are able to see women taking up space and using their voice. And we are telling stories, thank God, in art right now that are women's stories that are important and and just human stories that we haven't seen. And I think that that's, you know, that's our gift as artists, but also our responsibility. And I'm glad your daughters are, I feel like we're at least making progress. We're not there yet, but I feel like at least they're seeing the progress beginning, Right. you know? Is there an example you can think back early in your career where you did make yourself small and you didn't take up space? Like, is there anything that it's comes to mind? It's still hard for me. It is? Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with people pleasing, but I also think a lot of it has to do with sort of, like I told you, the gratitude I feel, and I don't ever want to seem like I'm ungrateful for what I've been given. But at the same time, you know, there was a study where it's like men went into a a job interview or something of a job they'd never done. And they had, it was like, you know, of course I can do this if I've never done it. There was just no question. But all the women they interviewed were like, no, I'm not perfect at it. Like, I I know I don't I don't have it yet. So I'm going to wait to go in. But the men jumped. You know what I mean? And so I feel like that's where like the perfectionism comes in, too. It's like, oh, if I'm not enough, then I'd rather just wait till I am and let me figure out. But uh, but I'm making a conscious effort in my life nowadays to take up space. You know, I I feel like we have a responsibility. And so how can I be that role model without living the truth of that myself? And so I'm making a concentrated effort now yeah. to take up space and to know, look, I'm a good person, I'm a kind person, and I'm grateful. And the people who I'm meant to be around and to work with and all of that will know that even if I have my speak my truth or take up space or use my voice. And I think that there's, you know, there's a difference someone said between nice and good. And you can be nice all day long, but like if you're good, it doesn't mean that you can't also be nice, also speak your truth, also it kind of encompasses all of that. Right. And and I want to be uh, good words, from nice, now on. Nice, nice is, is the, the people pleaser. Right. Well, that's the people pleasing whereas being good means you're living like in authenticity, you know, that, yeah. that article I wrote, it's like you're, like, I don't want to be someone who's not living their authentic truth and taking up space and using my voice because that's not fair to your young girls, you know? And that's what motivates me to want to make that shift and that change. 
Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. You interviewed Shirley MacLaine. Oh, once. my God. Yes. Which is so cool. <laughs> and she's sort of like a hero of yours and yeah, obviously totally. a hero to anyone who acts. Yeah. Um, but I found there was one exchange that was so interesting. And I don't even think it was your intended exchange. And I think she heard something different. I think you said something like, sometimes you still think like a little girl yeah. to her. Mm-hmm. And she immediately, like, I think you wanted to hear about her relating to that. And I think she immediately went into the mode of, well, here's how we fix that. You know? Yeah. Well, that was an interesting interview for a few reasons. But I was fascinated by the fact that she did the El Camino Trail by herself. Right. And I said, as a woman who had, I think she had already won Oscars. I said, as and the a, El Camino Trail is like a that's super the long, long hike. Yeah, and it's like my dream to be able to go do that alone. And so what I said to her was like, I just could never do that. Like, I would be so fearful. I'd be so scared. And, and I remember her response was like, well, someday you've got to choose love over fear. And like, that's what's holding you back. And I said to her like, and you're a big movie star and you still... We're able to go do this and she was like yeah because I loved it and I was gonna do it for my soul and like why would I choose why would I let fear come in the way of that experience and yeah. I was like touche Shirley touche <laughs> <laughs> touche Shirley yeah no but I think that that is interesting sometimes you meet people whether they're your heroes or people you yeah. admire or whatever I, I feel like sometimes those people reveal themselves to you right when you need to hear something from absolutely. them absolutely you know and I need I still think about the phrase, you need to start choosing love over fear still all the time. Yeah. Because, God, if, if, if only we could all live that way <laughs> and, and let go of the fear and, and all of that, it'd be, it'd be great. <laughs> well, I think you are choosing love over fear. I think <laughs> Thanks, what you're doing, I'm very impressed with just the way you've sort of managed to, like I said, run the gauntlet that is this town that chews up so many people yeah. and, and that you're also sort of a seeker of, of your own truth and that's really, really impressive. Thank you. Yeah. This has been a very, I feel like I've run the gauntlet of emotions. I like, I thought we were just going to talk about, you know, UCLA theater school, but it's actually, I feel like this was, um, this was a really awesome conversation. I'm really glad we did this. Well, thanks for coming and doing it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Hey folks, that's our show. I enjoyed talking to Beth, and if you want to check out her work, she can currently be seen on CBS in The Neighborhood, and that's every week right in your home on network television. And you can also dive into your streaming platforms and check out Two Broke Girls, or just head out to the valley and mosey along the trails. You'll probably find her on her horse, where she's happiest. And partner, let me tell you, there's nothing better after a long clippity-clop through the Ponderosas than a little bit of offcamera.com. After you've saddled your steed and you're looking to put your boots up and get some first-rate entertainment, off-camera is the thing for you. So if you haven't checked out our website, what are you waiting for? You can see over 200 episodes. Now, the easiest way to see our show is on DirecTV's Audience Network, or AT&T U-verse. It comes streaming in through the satellite and the cable every week into your home. But if you don't have those services and you want to check out what we're doing, you can get our television subscription package for just $4.99 a month. That allows you access to over 200 shows to watch on any device as many times as you'd like. It's a great deal and a great way to get caught up with all the episodes you may have missed. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, 
I suggest you do so because that way you'll never miss another episode. They'll just get automatically delivered into your phone every week. And while you're subscribing, take a minute and leave us a rating and a review. That helps other people find the show. And we want other people to find the show. You can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. If you go to my Instagram, you can see all kinds of behind-the-scenes photos from this show. And you can get a little more of a sense of what we do here each week. So make sure to check that out. And if you want to send me an email, I'm sam at offcamera.com. I give bad advice out freely. I want to thank everybody that works on this show. Our producer, Crawford Chippy, Our editor, Nathan Shields. Our crack researcher and graphics person, Michaela Galvin. Our very capable studio manager, Sasha Snow. And our transcriptionist, Kara Johnson. You cannot make this show without these talented people. So... When you see them, give them a hug, buy them lunch, just pat them on the shoulder. That's what I do when I see them, except for the lunch part. I make them bring their own lunch. And especially, thank you for tuning in each week and going along on this experiment with us. I've been doing this show for a while now, and it has enriched my life in so many ways, and I feel so lucky to be able to sit across from these iconic artists and pick their brains. And it makes me happy I get to share those conversations with you. And I hope to keep doing this for a long time. So I sincerely thank you for your support of the show. So if you love what we're doing here, take a minute and tell your friends. Tell them on social media or better yet, tell them in person. But spread the word about Off Camera. And we'll keep bringing the show to you as long as we can. That's it for this week. See you next time, Off Camera.